when you're building a company like this, and you're trying to get product market fit, you have to find the place where your product can provide the most value in the short to midterm. So you have customers, but at the same time, looking at the long term, what's the biggest opportunity? In a way, you're being reinforcement learned as the founder here, the same way the chess robot we're talking about in terms of reinforcement learning. You could play the short game, which is, hey, we got to get into factories and figure out how to move these Dorito chips and batteries into the boxes without crushing them and quickly 24 hours a day. 365 days a year. But also, hey, winning the game could mean maybe losing some customers, but building that general purpose robot that you could put 100 of them into a factory and just say, go find work. This is really an interesting concept. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at Lemon.io. Go to lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, Go to linkedin.com slash next unicorn. All right. One of the most interesting angles for artificial intelligence is how they might impact robots in the real world. Now, of course, robotics has been going on forever. You've been seeing Boston Dynamics or Cafe X making coffee or little tiny robots, the Roomba going around your house and vacuuming. Maybe you've seen the automation at an Amazon factory. Incredible to watch. And robots have largely lived inside of factories, and they largely have been programmed by developers, and there is no AI going on. Computer vision is a small area uh, that's an exception. We invested in a great company, Root AI, that was picking berries uh, and using some of the hands that have been made, the hand technology, robotic hand technology from MIT, to very carefully use computer vision to find the right strawberry to pick at the right time. We've talked about it on this program over and over and over again. But now that AI is starting to hit a tipping point, as we've seen, a lot of founders are focusing on, hey, can we get a robot to uh, do reinforcement learning? And we're going to hear all about that today from Peter Chen. He's the CEO and co-founder of CoVariant. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. All right. Um, now, you worked at OpenAI for, uh, for a year or two. Uh, you went to Berkeley, got your PhD. Uh, and you founded Covariant back in 2017, raised a ton of money, just did a $75 million Series C, led by our friends over at Index. Um, let's talk a little bit. You heard my preamble, robots living in factories, yeah. robots not using AI, being very yeah. pro being programmed to do very vertical specific tasks. Yeah. You know, one robot in the Tesla factory is going to do something radically different than the next one. Exactly. And putting AI in front of these things. Um it's just not going to work in a lot of cases, and it could cause a lot of damage because these robots are big, powerful, fast, and they can break things, including humans, which yeah. tragically we see in, in these factories. So what is your approach? You got to this early. What is your approach in terms of putting AI uh, and robotics together to try to hit this future where, my gosh, could robots be learning uh, and using AI to do new tasks in the actual real world? Yeah. So... Um, that is a really good preamble in terms of a history to robotics. Right? So I would say 
robotics is not a new technology and not a new field. Like there are a lot of robots out there in the world, in car manufacturing plants, in electronics assembly lines, there are robots in all of these different places. And exactly like you said, Jason, those robots are programmed. And typically what they do is they do just the same motion again and again. And then an automation line, an assembly line is so costly because you need to perfectly engineer every step of the process so that a robot that is only doing repeatable motion again and again can succeed. But you can imagine there are a lot of things in the world that just cannot be reduced to repeatable motion again and again. And those are really everything that robotics has not been able to crack before, Mm. including the strawberry picking examples that you mentioned, including really all of the manipulation, like things that require your hands in warehouses and logistics, which is what we focus on. Mm. When you think about those facilities, like you're handling hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of different kinds of items that exist in an e-com warehouse. There's no way you can reduce the order fulfillment of that many items to a perfectly repeatable mechanical process. And those are all the places that we have not seen robots play a big role yet. And that's really how I think about AI's role in robotics. It's really not yeah. making those robots that are doing mechanical movement again and again better. Like You don't need AI there. Like You just you don't need, need AI. programming yeah. to do that. But what AI can really do is take robots out of those perfectly structured environment where you're just doing the same thing again and again to a much bigger world um, where you really need to handle mm. dynamic, diverse circumstances that's changing every second, every day, um, every season. Uh, and that really opened up a couple, or, couple more orders of magnitudes of robotic applications um, that are possible. Covariant, we are starting from warehouses and logistics, but we really see the broader world as a fair game for this AI applied to robotics. And there are really so, going um, into the factories, just just to because you, you mentioned that twice. Yeah, is obviously um, a great place to go because you have a high frequency of transactions, as you mentioned. Number two, you have a high variability, the different sizes. I ordered a bunch of straws. You ordered a couch. <laughs> you know, these are very different sizes, a pack of batteries and, a, you know, a computer, let's say, a laptop. Uh, and then on top of that, um, it is a semi-controlled environment. So you're yes. not building a robot that goes down the street and delivers a burrito and it's going to get kicked over. So yeah. while there's variability, it's controlled variability. It's variability exactly. on this you know, a conveyor belt in front of you, let's say, right? Yeah, exactly. So like, I think you can think about the evolution of autonomy, robot autonomy to going from perfectly structured environment to semi-structured environment, which Mm. is what we're handling in this type of warehouses, distribution centers, um, industrial environments, lots of variability, but still semi-structured. Like you're not, you're not going to have, for example, people kicking around or what self-driving cars can run into is like a turkey chasing a toddler on the street like really out of bounds um, scenarios um, mm. and so it's kind of like somewhere in the middle and not yeah. fully to the open world but you still expose you to a lot of diversity and complexities um, um, of the real world imagine this you got an idea for a tech startup you're going to change the world i know it but you got a problem you don't have any engineers engineers hard to come by they're very busy they got jobs backed up well you need to find great engineers. You need to find them quickly and 
you need to reduce your burn rate, right? Because you, you can't be spending like a drunken sailor. You have a limited amount of resources as a startup. Now imagine there was a partner out there waiting to help you who had a thousand on-demand developers and they were vetted, experienced, results-oriented, and passionate about helping your startup grow. And what if they charge competitive rates, you know, reasonable rates? Does this sound too good to be true? Well, you need to head to Lemon.io right now. Startups choose Lemon.io because they only offer handpicked developers with three or more years of experience with strong portfolios. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io will replace your developer as soon as possible. A bunch of launch founders have worked with Lemon.io. They've had great experiences. So here's the call to action. Super easy. To learn more, go to Lemon.io slash twist to find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. And Twist listeners get 15% off the first four weeks. What a deal. So stop burning money, hire a developer smarter, and visit lemon.io slash twist. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy at lemon.io slash twist. In terms of where we're at in this process and where you're at with Covariant, um, if I were to look at, say, um, playing games. Yeah. And so you have a very uh, finite game, chess. And then you have an almost uh a finite game but a much larger uh base of possible outcomes go mm -hmm. and then you have games that have a massive amount of human variability in them like say poker mm -hmm. so we've watched as those things have fallen and then even deep mind taking the entire atari 2600 catalog we just had mustafa on the program uh one of the co-founders of deep mind where are we at in that timeline? Are you at like chess? Are you at go? Are you at, you know, random video games and do reinforcement learning? If you had to baseline 2023, AI in robotics, reinforcement learning, wh where is it at? Yeah, it's, it's a like really a good question. Um, and, and the way that you're framing it um, gave me a lot of throwback to my days of doing deep reinforcement learning research at OpenAI and at Berkeley. I was training a lot of reinforcement learning agents like exactly also with atari suites of games uh, so it, it gave me a lot of flashback of memories but coming back to this question um this is a really interesting way to frame it uh, and i would say where ai for robotics is at um it's really from a technology from an algorithm from a models from a mm. compute power perspective we are at that atari moment and really beyond like i would say we are at even the starcraft dota mm. Uh, oh, that's um, a big a jump too, right? I mean, the difference between a game like StarCraft and, you know, a 2600 game like Pong is like yeah. the difference between checkers and maybe poker or go, right? It's a, it's a, that's a big leap. It's exactly. So from an algorithmic and from a modeling perspective, we are there. But what is missing is data. Mm. So it's very, very difficult to get robotics data, diverse robotics data that can build mm. this type of AI. So let's even use Go as an example, right? If you think about AlphaGo, hmm. incredible achievement, like that can beat human champion um, 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 and Go, incredible breakthrough that DeepMind um, has built a couple of years ago. Um, and and you have mentioned like why this was incredible. This was incredible because, because Go is a really complex game. If you look at all the possible compositions of a Go board, like there's some, something like 10 to the... 170 possible configuration of a goal game and that's more than the number of all particles in the observable universe and that's I like mean, a that crazy is just to pause on that the game go which just has two different stones exactly seemingly seems to be you know on on the surface value you would just look at go and be like checkers 
ah, that's a simple peasant game. It means nothing. Chess is much more sophisticated. It's not because of the size of the playing board. Exactly. You know, and and, uh, the number of, I think it's the dynamism of what can happen when you have a multiple angle flip and, you know, three or four different, you know, um, rows change at the same time. It's just so many possibilities of uh, outcomes. Exactly. So wild. Wild, like wildly complex game. And that was why, like for a very long time, leading artificial intelligence researchers didn't think we would crack go uh, in any time soon. And so it was a big shock, like when deep reinforcement learning was able to crack uh, the game of Go. And but if you look behind the hood, like one key thing that really powered that is the amount of data. Like if you look behind the Go winning um, deep neural nets, it's trained on more than 100 years of Go playing experience. Like, I mean, we can go into the details of like it starts from self play, expert play, and all of those kind of good stuff about the data. But just just pause for a moment and think about the sheer amount of data that is trained on. Yeah, when you're playing against AlphaGo, you're effectively playing against a Go player that has done nothing in her or his life for a hundred years, just playing. Right, Go, right? their That's- life is a hundred years of playing a hundred games simultaneously. Who knows? I mean, it depends on how many. H100s, I guess you have <laughs> exactly <laughs> racked, but it, it's playing such an amazing number of games uh, and figuring out outcomes, and it doesn't even need to be trained. So this is a good place to pause, given your background. If you were going to explain reinforcement learning in the case of Go or StarCraft or yeah. you know playing Pong to somebody who had never heard of artificial intelligence, they just want to understand how reinforcement learning works on a very basic level. Yeah, what are the you know three or four key concepts? and terms of art in reinforcement learning. Yeah. So the most two most fundamental concepts that you need to understand for reinforcement learning. One is you learn from doing different actions. So if you only do the same action again and again, there's no reinforcement learning because you have no contrast. Right. And then the second concept that you need to understand is um, there needs to be a reward function. Like so once you do action one, it leads to some outcome one. You do action two, it leads to some outcome two. There needs to be a reward function that can rate which one is better. Once you can have an agent that do different actions and the actions lead to different outcomes that can be rated by a reward function, then you can start doing reinforcement learning. And at a high level, it's really simple. It's about the agent exploring the world by taking different actions and that lead to different outcomes. Uh, and that outcome is rated by reward function. And then the reinforcement learning algorithm just look at what are the actions that tend to be better um, and mm. you start that learning loop on there. There are a lot of technicalities on how to make that work and how to make that run efficiently and how to make it uh, work well together with a big neural net. Um, like, for example, how do you turn GPT-4 into chat GPT-4? Like there's lots of craft and details that's needed in making that happen. But really at a high level, it's a simple step. It's taking different actions and figuring out which one is better and try to do that more often. That's really the core basis of reinforcement learning. Okay, so reinforcement learning, the, uh, to reflect it back to you, you, the behavior, you have to have a, an A, B, C choice, right? So you have to have a behavior choice. In the case of you know chess, it would be moving one of the pieces according to the rules, and there's only a certain number of pieces that can move in the opening move. And then what is winning? What, what do you want to reinforce? What do you want to tell it good? 
and good in chess is having a piece taken or not having a piece taken. Are those the two basic components there? Yeah, those would be like a good incremental reward function. And then your ultimate reward is whether you have won the game or not. Right. right. You can imagine losing all of the pieces, but if you won the ultimate game, that's still a good outcome. Well, and this is like a great point because if you look at somebody like Magnus or some of the top chess players, I watch clips of them. I don't know if you've ever watched clips of them on like TikTok or YouTube. They 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 now like make little short clips of the best endings. One of Magnus's like incredible gifts is he sacrifices massive amounts of material. He'll sacrifice a pawn and then he'll sacrifice a rook and you're like, "Oh my god, he's dead." But those sacrifices lead to a series of moves that boom, checkmate. And exactly. so it could be that getting a material advantage um, is the wrong uh, <laughs> training. It's like, it's like that's the short-term thing that's right to do. Take the pawn, take the rook. So the other player playing Magnus thinks they're doing the right thing, but they haven't thought as far ahead as Magnus, who is now, you know, mate in two when you, or mate in one when you, when you make that error to take the rook. Yeah. And you are referring to a technical concept um, here in reinforcement learning that is called like how do you optimize for a very delayed reward? Like you're optimizing for something that has a long-term dependencies. Like you make a move now and you maybe you lose a couple of steps, but you ultimately win the game. And the big challenge in reinforcement learning is how do you figure out that delay outcome and how do you figure out that um, long-term dependencies um, um, that you have? Um, I want to I want to take a step back and coming back to the data question on on robotics and on on your earlier question of mm. where we are in the AI for robotics evolution yes. and and I make this comment that from an algorithm and model perspective we have what we have like but we don't have data we don't have the mm -hmm. equivalent of goals data of hundred yes. plus years of diverse playing or ChatGPT ingesting Reddit and Twitter exactly and open the, crawl or Google indexing the web and putting it into Bard exactly we don't so, have the Reddit equivalent we don't have the GitHub uh, equivalent um, mm. in robotics and that is the key limiting factor uh, of hold robotics. on a second though does not I I gotta think Bezos who's a genius would have cameras all over you know the conveyor belts in the factories would uh, you know a, a couple of cameras watching humans do this be the potential you know uh data source or is it not trained enough so a robot and an ai watching a human pack boxes would that be if you had a million hours of that enough for you to send a robot in there so it's a really good um question like this topic like has an academic name like this is called third person imitation learning like so this is like you're seeing a third if from a third person view someone else doing it can you learn from that and i would say like the best state of the art is you could learn something from it mm. but it's never as good as if this is coming from your own actions how you have tried it um, mm. and whether you can actually learn from that yourself uh, and the reality is actually like even for uh, amazon like they actually release a couple of data sets uh, on the items that exist in their warehouses. And actually the data set is much smaller than what we have um, collected even here at Covariant from across the diverse set of customers um, um, that we have. A big chunk of that is it's not just about the data. It's also getting about like it's getting exactly the right format of data and getting the mm. right type of data, right? Like if you think about the modern movements in large language models, a lot of the secret sauce is in the type of data that you curate. Um, and this is not something that you can just 
oh, let me try to crawl more of the internet, right? The equivalent of that would be try to put more cameras in these warehouses and just look at conveyors, right? But are you actually capturing the useful moment, the most meaningful mm. data? And to understand what kind of data you need to capture actually require really deep understanding of what you actually need the robots um, mm. um, to solve. So can we collect um, useful data? Yes, for sure. Like we can already start collecting that today. But what we have found is that really to teach robots to operate very autonomously, you need extremely high quality data. And if you need very high quality data, they need to be collected in a very yes. purposeful um, um, way. I would think the hardware uh, that you use is distinctly different than a human hand. Now, they might have modeled it after the human hand, but it's going to move in a, in a different way. It can move faster. It can exactly. move in ways that would give us carpal tunnel syndrome that they would, you know, the HR department would say, you know, do not bend over like this. It's going to cause, you know, carpal tunnel. It's going to cause back problems. A robot does not have those, right? Exactly. A robot can just move in any direction. You could, you know, uh, you know, hyperextend your elbow and dislocate your elbow to move a package with a robot. So the data you collect has to take that into account is the flexibility of the robot, which, which can twist and turn in any, any, any given way. Where's the, let's, let's talk about where that robotic, the robotic hands are robotic arms, because you can buy a robotic arm now. Exactly. Um, that's capable of doing, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year with very little downtime. Yeah, that can lift hundreds of pounds for how much now? What is the entry level robotic arm that you might see in the cafe x coffee machine or you might use in a small warehouse uh to move uh, you know a 10 pound package or something what, what do those go for now yeah, industrial robots are an incredibly um robust and mature technology and so they they're really good like they last for a long time like they can work 24 7 and with proper maintenance like those robots can go for 10 years so it's actually really incredible um, um technology that's been built up and tool by the automotive industry um these type of robots depends on size and payload it typically goes somewhere from 25k to 50k um so which is not a very significant cost like if you really think about like the lane we're of talking time about super can... industrial if you if you were to compare it to a human arm a human arm in a factory would cost you 50 dollars an hour in total compensation and if it was working you know 24 hours a day that's $1,200 a day, 365 days a year. We're talking about a half million dollars per year over 10 years, $5 million. One of these arms could do that for 50K. Exactly. Like, so the robot so arm itself 1%. is an incredibly cost-effective um, yeah. um, technology. If you're a SaaS or services company that stores customer data in the cloud, then you need to be uh, SOC 2 compliant. You knew that from a third party and you need that third party to close big deals. And if you want to get compliant easier and faster, you need to use Vanta, V-A-N-T-A. -A. Vanta makes it so easy for you to get and renew your SOC 2. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that to three to five months without Vanta. And Vanta can save you hundreds of hours of manual work and up to 85% of compliance costs. This is a total no brainer. And Vanta does more 
than just SOC 2 compliance. They also automate up to 90% compliance for GDPR, HIPAA, and more. You can't afford to lose out on major customers. We all know that. Listen, it's a hard year. Last year was hard. You can't lose those major customers because you don't have your compliance dialed in. Just work with Vanta. Get your compliance automated and tight and tight is right. Lock down those big deals. Here's the best part. Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off. That's 10 hundies. Get $1,000 off at Vanta.com slash twist. That's Vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off your SOC 2. So we have a video speaking of robotic arms, maybe we could point to stop here, uh, you can take a sip of your uh, coffee there or tea, and then show us this video. Uh, and then we can continue the discussion maybe because pe people, uh, you brought some show and tell if you're listening, and you're not watching on YouTube, just go over to YouTube type this week in startups covariant, uh, and you'll find it real quick. So what we're seeing here is the robots that's picking up a really diverse set of items in a really chaotic pile of items. So what the robots need to do is not just repeating the same motion again and again, but it really needs to understand what's in front of it in 3D, what are the different objects, what are the different ways to approach the item was the best way to pick it up and really mm -hmm. manipulate it and transfer it successfully. And for those of you who is watching the video, you can really see a diverse set of items ranging from items from pharmaceuticals to CPG um, to candies, food, um, grocery items. And so you can really see how these items, they come in different orientations in the world. Uh, and yep. they also, each one can come in in a different position, but also different deformation. Like if it's a bag, like there's not the same bag that would always appear in the same. Um, if it's a bag of Doritos, which I think I see bags of Doritos and bags of gummy bags, uh, gummy bears there. Yeah. If you throw 50 bags of gummy bear, ba 50 bags of Doritos or gummy bags into a tray, um, they're going to land in all different ways. It's going to exactly. look very different to the robot. But after training, like you're saying, it's going to know this is a bag of Doritos. It has a certain texture. You don't want to crush it. If you hit it too hard, it's going to crack some Doritos. Um, whereas the gummy bears, maybe you could you could hit those a little harder. So what is that arm called? It's not a hand type arm. It's not a pincher. It looks like a, it's got like two digits that are kind of like suction cups what am i what are we looking at there in terms yeah, of so that these extension are, these are these are vacuum based uh hands ah. so like um jason like i said like you can very nicely articulate the difference between the arm like which is like the wide body that we're seeing mm -hmm. here this is a robot arm that's manufactured by abb one of the world's top four robot manufacturers and then there is the hand like which is mm -hmm. actually the part that gets in contact with the physical world like so the hands here it's actually a very simple mechanism. It's like so, um, there's vacuum that gets generated, and it's just kind of like one of the vacuum at your home. Like you can suck things um, into it, and then you have two tubes of uh, vacuum, so two cups um, that the robot is individually actuating there. So you can choose to use one cup or both cups together, depends on what is trying to pick up, or I suppose a different percentage on each one. Um, exactly, and yeah. and so what we have found is that. Um, suction or vacuum has turned out to be a fairly general hand technology like you can use this um, fairly extensively in the warehouse setting like it's not going to solve everything in the world like just it's not as dexterous as a human hand but it's actually fairly universal what we have found to be very important though is you cannot have the same robot hand uh, everywhere like if you're handling much larger items you can imagine you need bigger suction tube you need yeah, more this cups is picking to up pick a kettlebell uh, a 50 pound kettlebell is not getting picked up by the suction arm probably exactly but and it so could easily actually... be picked up by a pincher you know or whatever you call 
uh, you know, clasping like a, like a finger based um, yeah. um, um, gripper, right? So, yeah. And what, what this actually points out is something that's very interesting in um, AI for robotics is the AI for robots needs the ability to adapt to different kinds of physical hardware. Like it mm. really need the ability to um, not just handle one kind of physical body, but actually multiple kinds of physical bodies. Like because we haven't been able to build a hand or a robot arm and robot body that is as universal as human body. What that means is that for different use cases, for different customers, you need different hardware. And now your AI needs to have that ability to adapt to different physical embodiment um, um, that it has. Um, and, and this is actually a pretty getting at a pretty interesting idea, right? Then how do you actually build an AI that can learn across multiple different physical bodies? And how can you build an AI that can learn across multiple scenarios and different kinds of item sets um, um, that you're building? Uh, and that really sits at the core of what we're building, um, which is what we call covariant brain, um, a foundation model for robots. Mm. And we say it's a foundation model for robots because similar to ChatGPT, like that is learning across translation tasks, coding tasks, like all of these different language tasks related together. Um, the foundation model that we build also learn across multiple different robot tasks with different robot hardwares in, in different customer scenarios, in different verticals together. And we do that because that is necessary to solve the data problem for AI for robotics that we mentioned earlier. Like imagine like if every time I need to come up with a new robot hardware platform, I need to collect a bespoke set of data sets for that yeah. hardware. And if I need to collect a bespoke set of data set for one customer, you're never going to build up to that alpha goal moment of a hundred plus years yeah. of experience. Like, so, so really the only way to bootstrap this foundation model for robotics is to collect all of them together. And you have to build one AI that can learn across all these different tasks together. So which begs an interesting question. Someone like Amazon would see this information, this data, this learning as a proprietary advantage over target and walmart whereas target walmart or some other vendors who maybe were far behind let's say target was way behind walmart um and uh, amazon in terms of automating their factor i'm just making this up they might very much want to contribute their data in order to get your solution so how do you think about the go-to market strategy as a founder where some people might say i don't want to give you that data or how do you get that data and then how do you negotiate that with your customers yeah, so we work with um, customers that grow with big e-com customers that are um, innovation forward. Like they know automation with AI-powered robots is the way to go in the future. And they also look at themselves and say, um, there's no way I can build that competencies internally, like in order mm -hmm. to compete with Amazon, in order to keep up with the innovation. I have to work with um, a startup that takes a partnership approach and can really bring that technology to them. So one of these example is um, one of the recent customer that we have announced in Europe is with a customer called Auto Group, OTTO mm. Group. Um, they're actually the second biggest e-com um, company um, in Europe behind Amazon. Right? And mm. so they exactly compete against Amazon. So they, they are a big e-commerce uh, conglomerate. They also own, I think the American more familiar brand would be Crate & Barrel. So they own Crate yeah. & Barrel. Um, and and why do they partner with Covariant? Like they partner with Covariant exactly because they see AI robotics as inevitable. Uh, and they see that 
using that capability as one foundation model, one platform to transform multiple places of their supply chain network as crucial. But at the same time, they cannot build that themselves, right? So really the best move is to partner um, with Covariant and really bring that technology um, to um, their network. And yes, like they're contributing data um, to the platform, but they're also benefiting significantly from yeah, it. Yeah, like gift again. And, and, and because we have already built up such a broad data set over robots across multiple continents, they, the robots that deploy at their site um, can also achieve much better performance day one before you even contribute any data to it. Like you can already start benefiting from it. And this is a large part of what makes the current state LLM so powerful, right? Because like even before you fine tune, for example, a llama on your own data sets, it's already quite useful, right? Because it has already learned so much about the world that even for your own business problem, it hasn't seen all of the proprietary data yet. It can already perform well out of the gate. And by working with us, like we give them the ability to um, ingest their data onto this um, large data sets that also make the AI more powerful on this specific um, 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 use cases. Got it. When you're selling to B2B buyers, you really want to get your pitch in front of the decision maker, the person who gets to sign the check, because these upper level execs, they're the ones who make the purchasing decision. Everybody can have an opinion on the team. Of course, it's 2023. But there's always somebody where the buck stops. And that buck stops on their desk and doesn't get into your bank account. These high level folks are hard to find. They're hard to target on social media platforms. But LinkedIn is the social network for business. And they have 930 million members ready to do business with you. And that includes the 180 million senior level decision makers. Plus, don't tell anybody there's also 10 million C level executives there. That's a ton of purchasing power. LinkedIn ads is built specifically for B2B marketers. No other platform in the world can offer these eyeballs and you can target them obviously by their location, the size of their organization, their vertical and their title. When you think about business, I want you to just think about LinkedIn. LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn. It's that simple folks. When you present them with an opportunity, they will of course be in the mindset to receive that because they're not posting pictures of their food from Italy on vacation. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit towards your next campaign by going to linkedin.com slash next unicorn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash next unicorn. Terms and conditions apply because LinkedIn is so generous to the This Week in Startups audience. What do you think of the projects like Tesla's, I think it's called Optimus, um, you know, building an actual, um, you know, full on robot that looks like a human and walks around like a human. Obviously, these arms vertical, you know, they're, they're, they're vertically integrated. They've been out there for now. Uh, what is it? 30, 40 years of these arms, you know, being at scale, I guess, and uh, making a huge difference beating humans every day. Um, but, you know, some folks are going to take the approach like Elon's doing. Uh, there's figure, I guess, is the other one. Uh, of hey here's a here's a robot that is a human it's going to reinforcement learn uh and uh, walk around your factory or walk around your house and put dishes in the dishwasher or pick up and clean up uh, after the dog if it you know spills its uh, food over or worse <laughs> yeah so i'm very glad that someone is working on humanoid robot like yeah. this is going to be a very key enabling platform to really open up to a wide set of robotics use cases so if you think about like these 
industrial robot arms, they are really good, but what's the limitation of them? The limitation of them, they are largely fixed stationary robots, meaning you have to bring work to it and you have to constantly feed work um, to it. And those type of robotic applications only make sense if you're running a two to three shift operations and the robot constantly can be busy. Uh, and that's the type of use cases that we are solving for our customers. Like these are heavy industrial environments that there's work constantly happening. And that's where you have this super positive um, um, business case. Um, it's a very big market. Right? Like we can easily sell billions of dollars of ARR worth of um, robots um, to this type of logistics setups that run two through shifts of operation. But it's not everything, right? A lot of things that's um, in a not as intense industrial setting like maybe you would only do your dishwasher twice a day at most yeah. right and that's yeah, twice like, a week who knows yeah yeah or twice a week right so yeah. does it make sense to have a dedicated robot arm that's fixed around no. your dishwasher to only do that unless you're no, running a cafeteria and i looked at uh there's a dish bot i think it's called which was using magnetics to pick up the things but you had to use the same dishes Mm -hmm. So if you had a cafeteria and use the same size bowls, the same type of cups, and they're made of like plastic, not China, you could actually use it. But yeah, so with this, you know, Tesla Optimus or, you know, the, the other ones in the market, they can go find work. They exactly. can go into your backyard so, and start so looking for work. Exactly. They don't need to work in one fixed setup like that only high volume industrial environment can, can afford. Like it's like commercial kitchen, like it's another type of like industrial yeah. environment. So this is going to be a very important platform. Like basically it's going to open up robotics to even more use cases where it's starting to go into automating things that aren't frequent, that don't mm. happen frequently. So very, very important technology building um, that needs to happen. I personally don't really have a forecast of when this will land, like because this is a very tall challenge, right? You are trying to do a lot of things that's not very high level of very high value each one in isolation like but you need to be able to do a lot of these so that puts a lot of burden on the generality of the hardware platform mm. and the cost of it right? yes. because each single one of this is not going to be very high value um that also means like if your humanoid robot costs a million dollars that's yeah. not and you can't use it in your house unless you're you know, got a lot of dispensable <laughs> income. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you could use it uh, if you were a military application, you know, or it's a, a newfangled firefighter that can go into a burning, you know, uh, pet store and take the pets out of the pet store without getting burned. Like, yeah. there are going to be some applications where you're willing to pay a million bucks. And, yeah. and actually, we have bomb robots now. They just don't look like humans. They look like, you know, um, little RC cars, right? They, they drive yeah. them around. It's such an interesting point you make because when you're building a company like this and you're trying to get product market fit, you have to find the place where your product can provide the most value in the short to midterm. So you have customers, but that, but at the same time, looking at the long term, what's the biggest opportunity? In a way, you're being reinforcement learned as the founder here, the same way the chess robot we're talking about in terms of reinforcement learning. You could play the short game which is, hey, we got to get into factories and figure out how to move these Dorito chips and batteries into the boxes without crushing them and quickly 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But also, hey, winning the game could mean, you know, uh, maybe losing some customers, but building that general purpose robot that you could put 100 of them into a factory and just say, go find work. 
is really an interesting concept. It is. It is very interesting, and and we yeah. believe the key way there is um, keep building a general AI, right? Because ah. that that is the thing that is going to transcend whatever use cases that you're looking at today, and whatever um, platforms, uh, hardware platforms um, that you're building it on top of. Because a generalized understanding of the physical world and how to interact with it is independent of the use cases, independent of the use case frequency, and independent of the hardware platform. So. Like from a covariant perspective, like I wish um, the Tesla Optimus like hardware platform exists today because that mm. can allow us to put our AI, ah. our foundation model on yeah. it to solve a lot more problems. Like, and well, what's I think the biggest problem in hardware? Like w what is the big, uh, is it the actuators? Is it creating the pulley systems? I know there's many different types of pulley systems. What seem to be the hangups there? From a humanoid robot perspective yeah. or from just generally? generally and then we could go to humanoid but i think generally what 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 is it that the robots can't do yet is there some blocker that everybody's going oh you know like storage used to be or bandwidth used to be in the internet if it, yeah. there was an equivalent in robotics is it those like actuators or the, the pulley systems that you know create the strength where the arm can move is it the the, the tips of the fingers to know this is a, a ripe strawberry versus this is a firm piece of corn yeah, yeah how do you how do you think about that so um, the answer to that actually is very different if you think about it as a general purpose humanoid robot versus like kind of a more classical robotic automations um, perspective. And I'm going to say a little bit what's the difference. Yeah. The difference is that um, from a more classical um, robotic automations, um, the key thing is can you customize very quickly? Because like for every single physical problem that you want to solve, you typically can come up with some clever mechanisms that make the problem easier because the problem is not every single thing that a human body um, needs to do. Yeah. So the ch hardware challenge there is not so much of any single individual one of those, but is for every new problem, you need to customize your hardware design a little bit. Like, and it's your speed of customization that sits at the core um, hmm. um, um, of this. The humanoid robot is interesting. The humanoid robot... I would say it's as much as a product problem, like as much as a hardware problem, as a product problem. Like we cannot build a humanoid that is as good as human today. But then what is the first humanoid product that you should build? Like I would say it's as big a problem as the specific hardware challenges um, mm. um, that's there. Like, like you said, maybe we should build a humanoid robot that focus on bomb removal use cases mm. first, right? But then like once you articulate that product problem, yeah, you can find a way to engineer for it. Like, what's very yeah. difficult is engineer something that is as good as human. That's too general and too vague. Too general, um, right? A problem, problem, um, yeah. um, um, to tackle. Well, I like the approach that you've taken, which is we know the total addressable market for e-commerce and moving packages around is high volume, high transaction, and high value, right? So it's got exactly a lot of the. If you would put the circles, high volume. Yeah, high transaction, high variability, maybe, or yep. complexity, yep. maybe a better word. And then there's money involved. So exactly. it might be small transaction sizes, maybe it's $40 on average. But there's like a million of them a day coming out of this factory. Exactly. So you, that means you got $40 million worth of product going out a day, you know, and, and whatever that is per year. So yeah, it's extraordinary how much value is that when you studied the TAM of other markets, obviously, factories were one, but they're yeah. well, you know, factories are well-oiled machines. I don't think they apply as much to what you're doing because there's not variability. 
So this is actually that, like, um, uh, let me make two comments. Like one comment yeah, is coming back to your multiple circles and, and then yeah. the complexity and the variability part, um, it's actually a super important part for building a general AI for robotics. Um, because the AI that we build in warehouses and distribution centers can see really virtually any objects that exist in the world. That mm. gives us a extremely good training ground to build AI that can work. Um, elsewhere like so i mean given this ah. is a technology podcast like i like to like make yeah, that sure. technology no, point. yeah um and then the second part of about um what you were saying um and like if you think about like the type of use cases that we are deploying into like they are you can really think of them as um starting ground to mm. build the future of, of robotics like and because the key insight here is that the AI that understands the physical world and interacts with the physical world is almost independent of use cases and independent of hardware platform. And so by finding this high volume use cases in one industry, like it gives us the ability to start this flywheel to start building mm. the AI and start solving the data problem for robotics um, that other people just can't have access to because they don't have that real world data. They don't have that real world robotics interactions. Uh, amazing. Uh, this is just extraordinary. You're in year five or six of your journey. And, uh, it looks like the, the, the understanding of AI and the importance of it in the world has caught up to your vision. Uh, so that's nice. I guess a lot of investors suddenly that said no to you for the first five years are now banging on your door saying, how do I get an allocation? Or talk maybe a little bit on a practical basis about being a founder when people think that's too hard. That's not good. That's going to be a money burning pit to everybody saying, Oh my God, that's the future. It's here now. I need to go make up for this mistake and not backing your company five years ago. You, you must have a lot of boomerang investors. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's very interesting because when we started the company, the term foundation model didn't even exist. Like, so when we started <laughs> telling people what we did was we are building one AI that can learn across multiple tasks, learn across multiple robots. And then people would be like, uh, I don't see why a specific AI isn't better. Like, why shouldn't you just train an AI that is on one specific use case for one specific customer? Like, no one would make that claim anymore today. Like, because people have seen how GPT-4 is better at, at translation than Google Translate. Even though Google Translate is also a deep learning powered mm. AI-based yeah. translation system that is just a more task-specific one, right? So it turns out that GPT-4, by learning to do a lot of other different language tasks that are not translation, gave it better understanding of the world in terms of semantics, history, memes, grammar, that actually make it much better at translation than a AI that is specifically built for translation. So yeah. it definitely has been tremendously helpful in the last um, half year or so that um, the success of our friends at OpenAI yeah. and Farpeg or cohere other places that have done have really so some of those vcs came back some of those vcs uh emailed you back after turning you down i take it definitely like i would say that's that's, yeah. that's definitely a huge increase in interest just I because think that's the greatest the, it's not the greatest feeling ever as a as an as a founder is you get rejections all day long man when you can't you must have met with 100 investors you know before this ai boom and gotten 97 no's is am i approximately correct 90 percent no's 95 percent no's we are somewhat fortunate that like we have really um big supporters um internally. And so we actually had not had the need to 
fundraise very extensively oh, outside. Well, I, I guess like you're open AI. Mike, yeah. Mike Volpe um, from Index has been a big believer in um, this type of general firm. model yeah. Um, um, yeah. very early on. And so we got lucky there. But mm. yes, like even, and that's true, not, not even just with investors, like that's true with customers, right? Like, because yeah, like this boomerang whole, customers, this whole thesis of general AI mm. being a better approach than specific AI, like also customers didn't use to believe that, right? But the, now mm. they really cannot refute that anymore because the whole world is moving into that direction. Like no one wants to train specific AI model on their own specific data sets that's going to get stale, yeah. that's less performant than a more general AI platform anymore. So um, that movement has been extremely both validating to the approach that we have taken for the last couple of years, um, but it also helps us tremendously. Yeah. Customer side from um, the capital market and all of these different aspects. Absolutely fantastic to have you on the program. Uh, Peter Chen, Covariant AI. You can follow him on Twitter slash X. He's not super active. Peter Xi Chen, XI, Peter XI, C H E N. Covariant AI. Um, what's your domain name? So I can send people because I know you're hiring. Oh, Covariant. Covariant.ai. Yes. Yeah. So if you're hiring, what's the, what's the, what's the hardest thing to hire for right now? What do you need? Which I'd like to help uh, fill some positions for you to thank you for your time here on the program. Yeah, we're always looking for great engineering talent, great AI mm. talent. Like if you're interested in solving hard problems that have not been solved elsewhere, right. like which is what we are doing every day. Like uh, we would love to hear from you. Covariant.ai slash careers. The HR department's going to uh, thank me for uh, setting up the careers page. So. Yes. Uh, great having you on the program. Continued success. And I uh, would love to check in with you in about a year and see how you're doing on this incredible journey. And we will see all of you next time on This Week in Startups. Bye bye. <laughs>